Howdy. This is a uh, fuck. Welcome to the fail. Uh, no, 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 I got this. I got this. All right. Welcome to the art of the fail. This is a podcast hosted by Christian Borgazan, co-founder of Bruja, and myself, Chris Buttonham, co-founder of Obi.ai. We chat with startups and entrepreneurs about their failures in hopes to uncover incredible lessons and unmask the stigma around failing today. <laughs> Nobody likes this shit. Let's just get started with the show. Ready? Yeah. All right. So we're, yeah, we're good. We're, yeah. we're recording right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, welcome everyone back to another episode of The Art of the Fail. I'm here with, uh, with my main man and my co-host, Chris. How's it going? And today we have another awesome episode. It just also so happens to be our 10th episode, which we're really excited about. So we can finally say that we're in, uh, we're in double digits. Season one. Season one. <laughs> um, and, and today we're joined by an awesome guest, Eric Arnold, uh, the CEO of Planswell. So Eric, thanks again for, uh, for hopping on the show with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, not a problem. And, and just to, uh, you know, we were just talking about it earlier, but just to give the listeners, whether it's, you know, your first time or your 10th time, whoo, um, a little bit of context. So I stumbled across a post that Eric made on LinkedIn, and it, it was all around his, you know, past failures and his experiences of entrepreneurship and running companies. Um, and so I reached out to him, kind of just like a cold reach out on LinkedIn, being like, hey, man, you know, I, I, I run this podcast with a buddy of mine. Um, it's all around failures. I saw a post that you made about failures, and I would love to uh, to, to get you on. So, Eric, I don't know what your initial thought was when, when I first reached out to you. You were probably like, who the heck is this guy, and what does he really want from me? But, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, thanks for thanks for getting back to me, because you wouldn't be here today if, if you did. Yeah, that, uh, that post was not a failure. It was... Uh... <laughs> nope. <laughs> Yeah, yeah we, were, we were looking on LinkedIn trying to find that the exact post, but it seems that uh, you've you've found like the the listicle um, viral virality on LinkedIn. You've you've hit that home pretty good. I got the recipe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. It's um, like we're over two million views on uh, between three posts. Wow! So wow! Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. And I got to meet a lot of cool people like you. It's yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, we'll kind of open up the floor to you, and, and why don't you tell us and everyone listening today a little bit about yourself, uh, your current situation, what what Planswell is, what you guys do as a company, and then we can we can jump into your prior experiences. Sure. Yeah. So at the moment, I'm uh, I'm running a company called Planswell. It's a financial planning um, company that tries to solve the problem that basically nobody knows what they need to do on a monthly basis to maintain their lifestyle into the future, whether it's when they stop working in retirement or they're trying to put their kids through school or they're uh, stopping working ahead of schedule because they get sick. Uh, basically, everybody experiences a lifestyle decline in the future. Um, so we wanted to make it uh, accessible for everyone to have financial plans instead of just the wealthiest of the wealthy, which is what it's historically reserved for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we made, we made a system to build financial plans in about three minutes flat, it's completely for free. Um, and they're the best financial plans uh, you can get on the market. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty exciting and kind of worthy cause to be working on. So far, we've created plans for about 20,000 different people in Canada. Um, wow. And we've just gotten started in the past few months, really. What sparked uh, you to get into that? Um, so I'd, I'd worked, I worked at, uh, at a big bank as an investment advisor for a while and, and realized that 
it was pretty cool what they could do for multimillionaires. And uh, you could basically do that for about a couple hundred of them over the course of your whole life. Uh, and I was, I was coming off of a, you know, career in, in online marketing and tech startups where the goal was like thousands of people a day. And so it was like, well, why can't we do this? Like, why can't you give this to everybody? Mm. Um, so it was kind of a mashup of all my previous experiences. Awesome. Awesome. Um, how long has that journey been with Planswell since you started? So some of the realizations were back from 2012 that people would be willing to give us all the information to make a financial plan over the internet, which was a big kind of milestone that people like, you know, roadblock that people didn't think we'd be able to achieve. Um, and so it took, it took a, a number of years until late 2015 of, just continuing to bounce the idea around and trying to figure out what would it take to build a company that not only could create the world's greatest financial plan without any humans cutting out hundreds of thousands of the most like well-trained financial experts, as well as build the infrastructure to actually implement plans for people that manage their investments, manage their insurance, manage their, their mortgages and their debts. Um, because if you just make a plan for somebody and you give it to them, either they're going to an advisor who's going to then change the plan and rip them off in most cases. Right. Um, or, or they're just not going to be able to implement it if they, if they don't have enough money for an advisor to talk to them. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was a big kind of undertaking and it took a while. So 2016 is what, when we really started raising money and spending it. And so we're about two years in. Nice. I imagine, I mean, candidly, I'm uh, foreign to this, this side of the, the world, but I imagine there's some legal hurdles or at least some, you know, um, some of those hurdles that you had to go through. Is, is there anything that stands out in terms of, you know, ramping up from 2012 to 2016 that you really had to overcome to, to make this a business? I think that was the reason why we were held back so much from, you know, 2010 or 2012 through 2015. It was like, I don't think we can do this. <laughs> I don't think we can just, mm-hmm. like, that's basically what a bank does. You can't just start a bank was the advice that we've, we received over that time. Right. Um, but we, we, we got to the point in 2015 where we were like, yeah, we, I think we could do this. Robo advisors were coming to market. Like FinTech was a word. And, um, so we, you know, we did all the research there's, yeah, like definitely, a bunch of different regulators we have to deal with and it takes like months to get things approved and, and we've run all the, the gauntlets you need to run. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So. That's crazy. I think uh, a lot of my favorite, oh, you know, quote unquote startups over the last um, 10 years are those who have had to sort of, um, you know, even create legislation or, you know, often even with our own companies, I'm sure you can empathize with this Christian is like, you kind of have to wait, um, for the right timing also. I mean, you can't be too early and you can't be too late. And so it's, it's a finesse of trying to find what that right time is. Right. Um, so that's really interesting. Timing's key for sure. So do you want to take us back to sort of where, um, some of your entrepreneurial journey started and, you know, some of the, the hurdles, uh, and, uh, and paths that you had to take, uh, in order to get to this place now. Sure. Yeah. When you reached out and said, look, we want to talk about your failures. Um, it's like, okay, like how long are we talking about this? <laughs> See, and, and like I said, in the intro, perfect candidate. <laughs> I, I try and fail no less than like a hundred times a day. So it really depends on how granular yeah, you want to get into. You know what? And that's, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that we see eye to eye with that. Cause that's, 
that's the whole reason why Chris and myself started uh, started this podcast in the first place was to just kind of showcase and show people and get the word out there that like failures, no matter how big, small, you know, what the magnitude of them are, they're so, so, so important for us um, yeah. to, to grow, you know, whether that's on a personal level or, or a professional level. I mean, hopefully the fuck ups aren't <laughs> too enormous <laughs> or you can't move on from them. But, um, yeah. but yeah, at the end of the day, you know, they're, they're by far our biggest and our greatest lesson. So, you know, sorry to interrupt you on, on, uh, you getting into that. No, you're, you're right. I think you're doing a good thing and I, I love the topic and I, I think this is what we need to talk about. It's, it's a big problem that people are expected to go through the first, you know, 20 years of their life through school in a system where it's like over and over again reminded that like the, the goal is to not fail. Yeah. The goal, like failure is the enemy. Don't fail. And it's just beaten into you for 20 years. And then all of a sudden you get out of school and it's like, obviously that's what everyone's thinking. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a big mental shift to understand that failure is fantastic. That actually the only way you learn things is by failing at them and overcoming mm-hmm. like adversity and, and feeling that pain. Um, if you look at how you exercise your muscles, like you, you push them until they fail. If you, if you don't push them until they fail, then they don't get better. Yeah. Um, the same thing applies to everything, everything in life. Right. So I, yeah, like I, I have a, like a long track record of, of just failing abysmally at everything I've done in business. Um, but, but along, along each, each kind of thing that I tried, I learned, something fantastic or something um, that that did work really well. It wasn't enough to carry a whole business. Um, In many cases it was, and I just didn't have the mentorship. It didn't like, you know, bother to reach out for help enough to realize what I had. Um, Right. But but when you go through that, like I, I remember I was in a meetup one time. um, It was a couple of years back and, uh, and there was a guy from Google who had had an exit and, you know, multimillionaire guy and they put him up on stage and it was kind of like one of those fireside chat type things. And, maybe like 50 people in the room, mostly entrepreneurs. And, and he said, um, how many people here are on their first startup? And it was like half the room raised their hand. And it was like, how many people um, keep your hand up if you if you have a failed startup under your belt? And like half the people put their hand down. And it was like, put your, keep your hand up if you, if you got two failed startups under the belt. So you got to like six. And he and I were the only two people in the room uh, with our hands up. And I was like, it's awesome. <laughs> I'm winning. <laughs> so, yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, I, I, what, would, what would you like to know? Like I have, like, do you want to hear a bit of the, you know, autobiography of, of what I've Yeah, yeah, take, take us through it. Yeah. So I guess, like, my first thing was, like, I started off knocking on doors when I was 10 years old trying to sell coupon booklets to people and getting rejected because it was like too cold outside of them to keep the door open long enough but I had, I had some success with that and uh, um, I've, I've gone on I started about 10 different companies um, depends on how you define like the company was started uh, enough to qualify it as a, as a failed company as opposed to just an idea that, you, that we worked on for a while and decided not to pursue if you count those then we're then we're looking at probably like 20 to 50 companies <laughs> Um, but we've, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at a, a whole bunch of different business models. I started off with offline stuff. I'm not really that technical and kind of always thought I wouldn't get into anything online. Um, I had a window cleaning company with like 20 people in it when I was in university. I had um, a chain of loose leaf tea stores and, and shopping malls uh, that we kind of had an exit to Ethiopia. Uh, to it was like a merge mm-hmm. um, that allowed us to make some extra money uh, through revenue. But um 
we had, I had some success. So after that is kind of when I got into the online space and I, and I built a company for um, independent musicians to uh, to have a place to submit their music um, that was a bit more friendly and that would be socially curated. Hmm. Um, so there's, there's a lot of songs out there and a lot of them are not very good. Um, so it's very hard for like, a person who just wants to consume music to really find like the diamond in the rough. What was um, that called? It's called Weekly Indie. Okay. Uh, which was a which was a bad name because people kind of thought it was all about indie brand, like indie genre, um, but it was supposed to be like independent. Right for yeah, independent uh, artists, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, but that was that was pretty neat, and the metrics on it were in hindsight fantastic. Like we could have we could have blown that up into a huge company. We had press in like seven languages and like a few different continents. Like it was it was really cool, um, but we we couldn't get it profitable. Uh, like immediately, which is like not something that like most companies can achieve. Yeah. Um, but in our minds, we had to do that because we didn't want to raise money because we just didn't know how. We didn't come from. So I'm talking about we. I'm talking about my business partner at the time, Scott, who's our COO at Plansol, actually. Mm-hmm. And we didn't come from like rich backgrounds or anything. Nobody wanted to give us like hundreds of thousands of dollars for our ideas. Right. Uh, so we just shut that one down. That one could have been a big win, I think. Um, so what was the decision there to shut that down? Ah, you, you <laughs> beat me to it. We were looking at the metrics where it was like 50% of people who submitted a credit card for a free trial would activate it. And it was like, I think it was like seven bucks a month. This was back in like 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like seven bucks a month. It was very much like Netflix. Um, actually, the user interface was similar. Like this is before that existed. Um, and uh, and most people would would cancel it within about four months, I think the average was. And the cost to acquire that original credit card submit um, was something like 40 bucks or I don't know, whatever the metrics were, it was like we lost a bit of money by the time that the average person canceled, um, which is like, okay, all you need to do is maybe like iterate a little bit on your product and like make it like slightly better. But at that point we were, you know, probably like, $10,000 $10,000 deep and we were like, it was like a lot of money for us at the time. Um, so the so, unit economics just didn't, didn't map out and you didn't want to raise money. So you figured this was, this was as good as it's going to get, you know, in the short term. Exactly. It's yeah. It's, we didn't, we told ourselves we didn't want to raise money. It really meant like we just didn't know how. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, we <laughs> yeah. and we had no idea that like those kind of unit economics were like better than what Netflix sees today right like, you know, they were actually like good enough to, to scale out a company but at the time we were like well we don't we don't mint cash immediately after a ten thousand dollar investment you don't um, know what you don't know so exactly yeah so we went on from that we started a whole bunch of different stuff we worked as affiliate marketers for other people's companies we got really good at um like lead generation and like initial user generation um never working on like the back ends so, like ran ran ads for like groupon and like daily deal sites so, I was onboarding like 10,000 people a day. At one point I was making $6,000 a day profit. Wow. Um, it was for, for, for like a couple month period. It was, was it like a gold mine back in like, that was like end of 2010, early 2011. Um, and along the, so we were working as affiliates and then we were also working, building our own offers that could be used by affiliates and trying to hit that kind of gold mine. We, we spend 10 or $20,000 building a company that turns into multi-billion dollars without raising money. That's a bit of a high, high hurdle to like, you know, uh, hit. Um, since like pretty much that's never happened before, <laughs> we kept trying. We had like a hypnosis weight loss company that was pretty neat that had, <laughs> had some good traction. That's um, awesome. And uh, we had a we had a socially curated search engine 
Um, the, the, kind of like our thesis on all of our companies that we've started is that um, nobody wants to make like decisions on what they should do. Like they just want to be told what to do. Um, and so like if you look at search queries, like two of the most searched terms um, in the world are best and top. Uh, and they're, they're searched like in conjunction with something else, right? And what that what my interpretation of that means is that people are looking for like a socially curated result. They're looking for advice, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what Google is serving people, uh, historically more so when we started this back in like 2010, um, or no, that was 2012, 2013, um, it's like a, a blog post or like a magazine article or something from like one author's opinion on the top right. 10 to do in the city or whatever. Um, and I, so we thought that kind of ratings would be a big deal. This is before Google was doing like ratings and mm-hmm. uh, and so you know there was rating sites like Yelp and and uh, TripAdvisor and whatnot that were for like very niche topics. Um, and all the user was allowed to do was rate things, and they, they struggled with incentive programs to get them to do even that. Um, and we said, what if we created like you know there's travel like and movies like they can they can hold their own in like a website and then people will go to that website but like if you wanted to know like what the best like soda flavors were in like Canada like there's, there's not there might be a website for that but like you're never going to find it you're never going to go looking for that <laughs> uh, so we said like what if we can make a platform where users could create the categories so that could be one and movies could be another one um, and then users could add like the competitors to those categories, like what kind of sodas there could be in that region or whatever, hmm. um, or movies. And then, and then users can rate the things and, and they can all like work on each other's things. Like it's not like your own thing. Um, so anybody can rate anything in any category or add competitors to any category. And, uh, and then we said, what if we took 50% of the revenue um, from all the ads that we would earn mm-hmm. um, and we give that back to the users through like an incentive program, like a point system. So you get residual points when people engage with your content. And, uh, and the people that post like the best content of the best categories and those kind of live on forever, they get the residual points to be, to be winning like a Porsche 911, um, like several times a year, if you like made the movie category with Shawshank Redemption at the top or whatever. Right. And, uh, so that worked really well. Actually, we had, um, like 30,000, um, pieces of content made in the first like month. There was like 6,000, uh, categories created. We had like 2000 users working like hours a day on this and. They were all doing it to win like free Domino's pizzas that we were like sending out to across North America. And how how did you I guess acquire those? I was actually just gonna find initial. Out. Yeah, I beat you to it this time. Uh, <laughs> how did you acquire those initial users in the very early days of of that platform? Because that's interesting. That's not a, a concept that really existed. Like you said, there's like listicle articles mm-hmm. that were already out there. Google was already ranking high, but that's like a, it's a brand new. To, to me, it's almost like the product hunt of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's like, first of all, I want it. Like I, I don't watch movies unless they have like a certain rating and like, I don't right. like go, I don't stay in a hotel. Like I tell my travel agent, if it's not in the top quartile, I'm not staying there. So like on TripAdvisor. Um, so I just felt that it would be great to know this for everything. Like when I go to a restaurant, I just like, they just give me food. Like I don't, I don't, I don't read menus. Like I don't have time for that. Like, well, how am I supposed to decide when they know everything? Mm-hmm. Um, so I needed it. Um, and then, you know, we knew how to run like incentivized traffic all day long. So I've done it for like hundreds of companies. So it was like, yeah, if we, if we put up an ad saying like you want a Porsche 911, like people are going to click on that, <laughs> like sign up, <laughs> like the cost to get them to sign up was like extremely in- inexpensive. Like we're talking like dollar kind of users to sign up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they get there and they see that they can, yeah, they can win a Porsche, but like very easily they can get a Domino's pizza. Cause we were like incentivizing that. 
um, like incentivizing the points beyond like we were burning money to like get this going initially. Mm-hmm. Cause that's, that's the hardest part. You're going to create an entire search engine yeah. from user created content. You got to incentivize it. Exactly. Um, What's so funny so, is there's probably pe- people who just went for the pizza <laughs> <laughs> instead of the borscht. Yeah. Well, we have all these photos. I was just looking at them the other day of like our users, like getting pizza that we didn't even take a picture <laughs> with the pizza person when Domino's got there. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It was great. Um, and so that like that one died because people started uploading porn and we hadn't built like an algorithm to like clean that up. Yeah, right. um, and then as soon as Google starts seeing porn on your website, you get classified as like an adult website. Yeah. Um, and so even though it made up like a small percentage of what was on like on our platform, like immediately we lost all our like it was like the most beautiful hockey stick chart you can imagine on organic search traffic. Like it was like going through the roof. Yeah. Uh, and then it was just like gone like no organic traffic at all damn wow. so, uh, so we just shut it down what was the monetization strategy there i think maybe i missed it i, I remember it you, you ads. said ads okay yeah. okay okay so there'd be like banner ads and then and then 50 percent of the banner ad uh, revenue would go to the point systems yeah okay i gotcha okay so that was another example where it was like that was ridiculous. Like in hindsight, I know that the traffic was amazing. At the time, we didn't, like, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know anybody in the tech industry. We lived up in the suburbs. Like it was like, mm-hmm. it was just, yeah, we were just stupid. Um, but like we could have raised money likely with that uh, traffic and we could have probably figured out how to not have porn on our website um, <laughs> fairly easily. <laughs> but uh, but we just got, we kept getting to this point where it's like, okay, we'd get there, we'd launch, we'd be like 10, 15, $20,000 deep and like, not making a lot of money. Right. Um, and then it would like, we would just get so exhausted. So we would give up. Um, the next, the next one that we did was, uh, called lesson vendor. Okay. And this one did had some good traction as well. It was, uh, the, the concept was, so you know, you know what, how big the industry is of private lessons. So I'm talking about in-person one-on-one private lessons. Hmm. Um, it is a $200 billion a year industry. It's like, Three wow. times the size of the video game industry. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't have guessed that. You would have? Yeah. I, I wouldn't have. Oh, no, no. I wouldn't have. Never, yeah. never in a million years. Can you name me one company that's the go-to company that you would like go to find a, a private like one-on-one lesson for any topic? No. Like, no. But one of my friends d- does that. Uh, she teaches like music lessons or whatever. And I think she does it through, I don't know if she does it privately or through Longham and Quaid, but like absolutely no. I have no idea. Yeah. If you want to take a tennis lesson tomorrow, like where are you going to go? Who knows? You want to take a cooking lesson? Who knows? Want to learn how to make sushi? Don't know. Like you might find it on a lamppost in front of your house. There's some ways to get it through Craigslist and, and like a GG, right. but yeah, like, yeah, not with really like reviews and no social curation, no like um, trust. So, so we thought that was a pretty neat opportunity. So we made a, we made a platform uh, for that. And uh, our, our benchmarking at the time was uh, Airbnb. So this was like, when was this? 2014? Uh, yeah, 2014. Uh, our benchmarking was against Airbnb, and so we said they were they were their whole game was get uh, hosts on the platform, right? So get people to take pictures of their bedrooms and post on the internet. Right. And uh, the more you get of those, like the more your website will be awesome, and everything else will just grow along with it. So we're like, okay, if we just get if we get teachers on the platform to post a lesson, like an advertisement for a lesson, saying, look, I'll teach you how to make you know, three meals in under five minutes, um, you know, three meals that you can make faster than macaroni and cheese, um, which is one that I took. A chef came to my house. Like it was awesome. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, 
you know, if we can get people to post those lessons, uh, that it will just follow. And so we were focused on that. We were hyper-focused on Airbnb's cost per acquisition being like over $150 to get a host. Um, ours was about $2. Like we were just nailing it. Like we had, wow. we had, uh, we had ads posted in every job category across Craigslist, Kijiji, all over North America, most of Europe, Australia. And uh, we had like all these people working in like Bangladesh, like posting these ads with these like ad generator things that were 25% unique and like phone numbers that all went into Miami. And like it was, it was a huge production. Um, And we got it down to like $2 and we had like thousands of teachers joining this platform. Um, It was like a map based interface. You could see them all over the world. Like it was, it was really, really cool. Um, And we, uh, we just didn't see like the, like we didn't like just magically get sales because of that. All of a sudden we just had this platform where they didn't know how to advertise it. And like the typical lesson is, is not like a thing that you're going to repeat. So you're going to spend 30 bucks doing a one-time lesson. We're going to make $3. And uh, again, with the unit economics, like we can't spend $3 in ads to get somebody to pay for a $30 lesson with their credit card. Um, so that would be very hard to be profitable. So it had to be um, like an SEO thing. And again, after even after like our huge fail with, with uh, Curate Search, um, we didn't bother to learn anything about SEO. So we were still kind of like failing at like all of the things you should, you should know um, about SEO. Um, so we, we, we couldn't get like the, the key to success for that would have been ranking for like guitar lessons, right. Or piano lessons, which make up the bulk of uh, that $200 billion um, around the world. But instead, like we were just ranking for weird long tail stuff, like how to speak with a British accent. If you're, if you're an actor trying to take a commercial audition, right? Like that was, I sold a lot of those, like seriously. Like, um, nice. We couldn't, we couldn't rank for the, for the big stuff. Yeah. How to make a bath bomb. If you live in Detroit, um, <laughs> well, there's, uh, speaking of bath bombs, there's a, there's a guy here in, in the office space that makes uh, bath bombs. Yeah. You could have ran a lesson for us. Yeah. <laughs> We ended up getting like Kijiji was so mad at us and they wanted to sue us, but we were working by their rules oh, and like spamming everything, right? And they were like, this isn't how this is intended to be made. And we're like, look, we read your terms and conditions. Like, you can shut us down. We're going to sue you for discrimination because you think that you think that we're just a competitor. Right. And uh, they ended up changing their entire terms of use on the job platform because of us. Wow. So now, now you can't, each individual company can only post two ads. <laughs> job without paying for it. It's like 20 bucks an odd beyond that. Wow. We used to have like thousands running all across the country. Right? <laughs> so they got rid of us. But <laughs> so many good growth hack lessons that you're teaching us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's interesting though, because, um, it sounds like it was working. Did you, did you, were you still on that mindset where, uh, we, I don't, I don't want to slash don't know how to raise venture capital. So until this gets critical mass, we're not going to make any dollars on this or was it, you know, what, cause it sounds like that was working. What happened there? Yeah, it was working. Um, the organic traffic again, wasn't like we needed organic traffic traffic and we couldn't figure out how to get it. Um, and so that, you know, there's a stupid excuse. Like, obviously, we could have just gotten some, like, SEO consultants to, like, help us with that. Um, again, still, like, living in the suburbs, like, my friends worked at, like, car dealerships and, like, shoveled snow. Like, it wasn't like I, I didn't have, a, like, a network to, like, uh, go solve these problems. And then, like, meeting people with um, who could potentially invest money in us, they would look at it and be, like, private lessons. Like, I don't – like, if you think about, like – 
how many people do you know that are like multi-millionaires because of private lessons? Yeah. Like there's, there's nobody, right? Like yeah. your, your friend at Long McQuaid is not going to invest in my business, right? Like they're they're going to understand it. They're going to support it. Um, but there's nobody who's like made it. And like the people, when, when it looks like angel and seed funding, um, what we've learned so well working in the financial industry now is that if you have people who have made millions of dollars working in, a, in, a, in the same industry in a bit of a different business model, but they understand your business model and they want to support it and they can get there really quickly, like with a, mm-hmm. like a lot of intuition, um, then that's, that makes it really easy to raise money, which, which we've had, uh, you know, we, we've benefited from. But when it comes to private lessons, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a different beast. I have a fuck up. I have to go get my charger. <laughs> tisk, tisk, tisk. Well, the uh, the show still continues without Chris, but yeah, that's all. It, it sounds like you know, just uh, kind of trying to pull like common threads or, or common themes that a lot of the businesses that you um, and it sounds like you also started a lot of these with was it Scott? Was that his? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you two have kind of been a a pair for a while um, mm-hmm. running these businesses, but it sounds like a lot of a lot of the businesses that you guys have started have kind of stem from your own like either personal experiences of of something that's lacking or just a really keen observation of the market where there's a huge opportunity i mean i don't know about the hypnosis thing but (laughs) um but the other ones yeah for for sure the hypnosis one was a great idea i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) not not saying it wasn't it it sounds like it was a great idea but it worked really well we 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 had some some good uh some good growth hacks on that one as well with uh i'm not even gonna get into it but (laughs) i was on a cruise ship right and so i'm like I don't, have you been on a cruise before? I, I have not, no. I actually haven't. No. So, so you go for like the week, right? And they have all this talent and like performances and stuff. And often, often like the high-end talent, they take on the whole week. Mm-hmm. But there's really only like one good show that that person has. But they make them do like two or three shows to like get their money's worth because they're there for a week. Right. So the hypnotist did like this huge like celebrity hypnotist type show that you would like imagine people quacking like ducks and all that stuff. <laughs> and then they did like an, another show like a couple of days later that was like – similar but like a little bit more mediocre and just like a you know secondary show and then like the third show at the end of the week like he busts out these like hypnosis like weight loss like cds that he's basically like selling does like a quick demo of it Hmm. and like to this like auditorium and and afterwards there's a lineup down the aisle of people trying to pay 150 bucks to buy these cds of him like doing hypnosis weight loss and i like wait i wait until the lineup's gone and i go up to him and i'm like you know have you ever try to sell these online and he's like online like i live on cruise ships like cruise ships don't have internet what is the internet (laughs) i was like like, all right well like you know give me some give me these cds and like i'm gonna go try and sell them online for you and make a whole brand for you make a whole company around this and i'll give you like a very small percentage of the revenue Mm -hmm. uh and and i'm telling you right now there's a 99 percent chance it's gonna fail but if it went if it works we're gonna make like millions of dollars like this is gonna be like a huge thing and he's like, all right. So he gives me the, the audio CDs or whatever. And I come back from my cruise. And I'm like, Scott, Scott, I got the next idea. This is what we're going to do. And he's just like, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's yeah. awesome. That's a great story. <laughs> I bet there, there's interesting insights in how that failed as well. Like it's again, it's like this like stupid, like individual thing that we probably could have overcome, but we just didn't uh, know how, but we, uh, so we, we went to, to launch that. And the whole game there is that you're uh, your merchant service provider online when you're when you're processing the credit card 
um, you need to have a really strong partnership with them. Like there's in, in a lot of, in a lot of businesses, like if there, there's one, there's often one partner that if they just like don't want to do this with you anymore, like your business is toast. Like if, if PayPal drops Airbnb, they're toast. Right. So like PayPal is the only company that can process transactions all around the world and make it really easy for Airbnb to get their money. Otherwise they'd have to call banks in like every country that could be a disaster. There's probably other companies now that can do that for them, but just as an example. So for us, like the, the ability to process credit cards, obviously paramount. And uh, so we start going around to meet these merchant service companies, not knowing anything about what's going on in the industry or, or really anything right. we lost. And, and, uh, and they're coming back to us and they're like, look, Visa and MasterCard have blacklisted rebills on anything related to diet. Right. And we're like, what? And they're like, well, you know, last year there was this huge wave of acai berry cleanse pills that were being sold online. And it was a free trial for like, you know, free. And they would mail you the bottle and the, the bottle would show up, but they'd already rebuild you by the time the bottle got there. And it was like a hundred dollar rebuild every month and there was no way to cancel it. And so they would call Visa and MasterCard and they would cancel it. And if you have more than 2% chargebacks, it's called where the, where the clients call the credit card company complain instead of going to you. Um, then they'll just shut off your merchant service, uh, like set up, right? But in cases where you have that a big wave, like the Daily Deal wave, which also got blacklisted in, uh, in 2011, you could not start a Daily Deal company because all the credit card companies were like, nope, no more. Um, in this case, uh, there were so many companies selling these like scam like pills that, uh, that they said no online rebills of diet and that we're like what well, this isn't diet this is hypnosis weight loss can't right. you tell the difference obviously <laughs> <laughs> so, like, no, like, we're pretty sure you copied the exact website of the assay berry cleanse and we're like yeah but, but we changed the name to hypnosis we're not even mailing them anything and they're like that's worse because you don't even have a track record of delivering value. Like you can't, if you, if you mail on something, at least you can prove you did it. Um, <laughs> we're just like, oh. so, they, so they told us that we had to charge upfront the entire amount and make that profitable on acquisition, which is like impossible to do. Wow. Um, instead of charging like a dollar to start and then like a few bucks a month or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was something that people did want to use on a regular basis. And we had lots of users. Like we sold a lot, not profitably. Like it, there was attraction. We sold a lot through daily deals, but. Uh, but we just couldn't get the unit economics. It was just because of that one thing with uh, with merchant service providers. Oh, that's crazy. So much power. I didn't know how much power that they had over that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's scary for sure. But it's like it, <laughs> business has it. Like with us, it's the regulators, right? Like the regulators are like, nope, we don't like you. It's like okay, right. poof, business is gone. <laughs> like, so. you know what? I'm I'm learning from all this. Scott must really like you. Yeah, he's uh, well, he's he's a great partner. We're he we're like a really funny contrast. Like he is so like conservative and so like risk adverse, and he's he's funny. He get he get on this podcast and he would have told you like you know he's really like risk adverse, and it's like in in the like in the context of all of our stories is like clearly he is not risk adverse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, meanwhile, like, Eric's getting off a cruise ship. Hey, <laughs> look what we're selling next. Yeah, he's like, I'm in. I love it. Or you're just <laughs> a bad friend. Lesson vendor. The idea for lesson vendor was literally uh, there's a company called Tudor Spree that went through Y Combinator, mm-hmm. um, and then they moved. I think they were in New York. They've been funded like millions of dollars, and uh, and they announced it was September. Is it September 2011, uh, I think, and they announced that they were just shutting down. Like they just couldn't figure it out. They had like all the best mentors. They had all the money. They had everything. Remember all the press. Like everyone's favorite company. Mm-hmm. 
and they, they made a press release that they were shutting down. That was immediately like the same day I called Scott. I was like, Scott, we're going to do it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love that. What, did they, did they write any like, uh, literature or blogs on, on why it failed? You know what? I never looked back after that. I never, like, I don't think I've ever searched them since then. Mm-hmm. Um, we just, we were like, we can do it better with $20,000 and like a few months of our time. Like we can beat what they did. Like yeah. and there were obvious things. Like we weren't like delusional about that. Like we thought we did actually get like probably better unit economics and better metrics and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, the real, the real key was making, getting to that point where you have to make that leap into like, okay, am I going to commit like a huge chunk of my life to this and take other people's money that I might lose. Cause I don't, I like really don't want to ever lose anybody's money. And, and thankfully not going with the data, I've still never lost an investor a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, or do I want to, you know, move on? Like, is, is it not like, it needs to be like a blaring, like obvious success for me to move on at this point, like for me to do it at that point. And, uh, so we just, uh, we would just shut them down, but yeah. And then, so to, to, to move this on to sort of the uh, further part of your journey, were there any, um, you know, I'm sure I, I can tell that there already are lessons that allowed you to execute plans well much differently. I, I, I see that you've now raised money with plans well, so there's there's definitely a change there, and and I I I like the piece that you were saying about how you didn't want to. Um, you know, all those things before didn't seem like that thing that you wanted to devote a huge chunk of your life to, which, you know, I've given a lot of thought to and, Mm -hmm. and you didn't want to lose anybody else's money. Mm -hmm. Something else we've talked about on that, on this podcast a a bunch. So can you share, you know, what, you know, some of the accumulation of those things ended up, uh, creating plans well? Yeah. So one of the big differences was that usually our formula is like, okay, what's an idea that we think is going to work? Can we build the entire company for $10,000? This is usually our cutoff, like maybe 15 (laughs) or 20 if we're having a good year. (laughs) um, And can we do that to see if it's actually going to work? And if we can get crazy, like hockey stick growth right out of the gate, then we can like run with it. And then obviously we never hit that because nobody does. Um, and then we just kind of give up and move on because we got to go back and make more money <laughs> to like support our families and whatnot. Um, the difference with plans was that we knew from 2012 all the way through 2015, we knew that we couldn't do that. Like we knew that it would be like mm-hmm. millions of dollars to build what we need to build. Mm-hmm. And that was like a non-starter for us. So like, we, like after 2012, like I went and I flipped a couple houses. I made curate search and lesson vendor between the time that I had the idea for plans and when we actually did it. Um, and so it was, it was in 2015 when we start really like we, we saw robo advisors coming to market. We saw like other fintech companies and, you know, lending companies and, and, uh, and we started pitching the idea to people and it was like a profound difference in the, in the elevator pitch response than all the other companies I've ever done. All of the other companies, I would go out to meet up groups. I would go out and meet people, potential investors, just potential users. And I talked to people about this idea and I give them the elevator pitch and they would always say, oh, that's interesting because people are polite. Um, and then they would say like, you know, I could see how somebody would want to use that. That's the same for every company I've ever started. That's the response. <clears throat> when I started pitching plans well to people, unanimously the response was, oh, I need that. Huh. Mm. And that was a really big, big difference for us. So that was the first indicator. And then we started pitching that to, to people who could potentially invest, who had potentially done it before or from the industry. And they would, they would look at it 
And uh, I don't like, I've pitched this company now, I think over 400 times mm-hmm. to like real like investors. And uh, I, I don't think there's ever been a person who says this is a bad idea. Like there was a, there's a few people like in the, before we did anything that were like, this is an insurmountable uh, like task. Like you're not going to be able to do it like technically right. and regulatory wise. <clears throat> there's no one who's ever told us that this is a bad idea mm-hmm. or like people won't use this or people don't need this. Like everybody is always enthusiastically in support of building this because the world needs it and because they need it. So that was, that was the confidence that we needed uh, to move forward. And, and along that same level of confidence and enthusiasm from the people that had worked in the industry before they were like, we can raise you millions of dollars easily. Like this, like this, this, the confident attitude of like, you need like only a million dollars. Like really like, Oh, I got this in my like back pocket here. Like there's, it was like surprise. Like, a lot of people have made a lot of money in the financial industry. I don't know if you knew that. But <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're walking all around down here in the yeah. financial district. Like, yeah. so. Wow. That's a, that's a crazy journey. Um, and can, can you talk a little bit about the, the fundraising process? Um, uh, because it sort of seemed like it took, you know, so many different steps for you to get there. Was it, was it, uh, you know, the the journey and and making connections throughout all those companies and sort of doing that that allowed you to do it for Planswell and and to that was it still you said you pitched Planswell about four hundred times to um, investors, um, which I can empathize with, and you know was it then still difficult with Planswell um, or did it you know all that work leading up to it sort of you know pay off. I think that absolutely it's a, it's a combination of all previous learnings. Like <clears throat> everything I do is, is, uh, is the sum of everything that I've previously done. Um, I didn't have any experience raising money before. It's the first time I've tried raising money. Um, so I can't say that we had like an existing network to go to or anything like that. We really did just start from scratch. One of our early, uh, you know, major supporters um, worked as like an osteopath and like in a high net worth kind of, uh, neighborhood and, and just had like this huge network it was a like, super social uh, person and um, he was able to, to kind of bring in the first like $700,000 really of like kind of from his network of people that really didn't like ask too many questions like this was like an idea and a deck at the time and we did it at, like a, at a, a considerably higher valuation than what is like normal in the in like the startup space um, and then that transitioned into uh meeting with people more from the financial industry who kind of like C-level, like former C-level executives from like big financial institutions um, who have like millions of dollars and, and can can cut a check for $50,000 or $100,000 without really thinking about it too hard and not really needing to do a lot of due diligence. And so the, the story um, was not that different than what we've talked about today of like, you know, here's, here's how we got here. Here's how, what we've done before. We, here's some initial metrics on the cost of getting somebody to make a plan, um, which is very low and very attractive, uh, you know, for a company. Mm-hmm. Um, here's here's some initial data on like clients actually implementing plans, and like it does. We do have reason to believe that this is going to be like a, a like a viable business, and like it's going to be like rewarding for the shareholders. Um, and then here's like initial data on like problem interviews we've done. Problem interviewing is like a big part of. Uh, you know, startup ideas and entrepreneurship. It's like you, you have an idea. Like the first thing you do is you go talk to people, not about your idea. You talk to them about their problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see if you can get them to tell you their problem um, that in a way that's exactly aligned with what you think the problem is that you're trying to solve, without telling them what your solution is. Um, and so that's 
So we did that like hundreds of times, like asking people about the financial industry, like what they like, what they don't like. If they ever had a good experience, if they ever had a bad experience, what do they think the financial industry should be doing for them that they're not? And like it was exactly the line for like hundreds of people that we talked to. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could show show that, and then uh, like there's just all this initial data that we were able to show people, and and then we had like the track record of other people, like advisors and other people on our team that had done uh, had done synergistic businesses that we could pivot to. So we have like a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, a plan C. There's like no way that like this business is not going to be viable for the shareholders. It may not be the same value prop. It may be a bit different here and there, but we have like this all thought out. Mm -hmm. So you kind of de-risk it for them. And then, um, and then we just like, I I do think the the main idea itself needs to be like super powerful. I do think that's what carries the company. But, uh, but we, yeah, I've I've pitched, I think about 400 people and almost a hundred people like, our investors in our company like we have like wow good for you we have like 40 45 investors that are like arm's length kind of like high net worth type people and then uh, many many like of our like people that we work with and consultants and, and uh, employees and advisors have all invested and so it's a uh, um like 400 seems like this is this is not the colonel sanders story like i, I did not pitch <laughs> 400 people before I raised the first dollar. Like it's like one in four people that we pitch, like cuts us a check within like a couple of days. It's a, it's a pretty awesome experience. Wow. That's rare. I think, um, you know, you're probably the most like eclectic person that we've had on the show that's done all of these different things. And I think that's probably a product of how, uh, successful plans will is becoming now. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just, I don't know. I just find it, I find it super fascinating and I, and I, I don't, I, I, you sound like a very thorough guy. So, um, did for plans? Well, it sounds like you really did your homework and you, you're telling me like, you know, the sort of the homework that you did, um, to then go approach those first investors did, was this new for plans? Well, or had you done that in the past? And, and if it's new, what changed you know, your viewpoint on, on having to have these things before going out and hitting the pavement? Um, I think it was that because we knew from the beginning that this could not happen without raising millions of dollars for a couple of reasons. One, um, because it's just going to be really freaking expensive. Like we have to deal with the regulators. You have to build like four companies and one before we can even make a dollar of revenue. Like that would be the only way to show like KPIs that are you know worthwhile. Um, so there's like, it's just a big thing to build also that I was just at a point in my life where I couldn't do another self-funded startup. Like I couldn't personally afford it. Like I didn't have any money. So it was like, I need, not only did I not have money, but I need to make money. Right. Um, I had, I had already had my first, uh, kid was born in 2014. I had another kid in 2015 mm-hmm. I had another kid in 2017. So <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, we, you know, we focus on entrepreneurial like, failures, but I, I had another like huge failure in 2014 where I lost like $200,000 in a month um, on the stock market and uh, a bad investment that I got involved in with, the, like, it wasn't my company, so it doesn't count as like companies that have failed at, but like I got really involved with another company um, that declared bankruptcy, like in a surprising way that it went from a $3 billion market cap company to nothing, uh, immediately. Wow. Um, so that left me in a position where it was like, okay, I got a kid I got a house. I got like, my wife's not working. Like maternity doesn't pay much. And like, I got to figure this out. That's when we started, uh, plans. All. <laughs> so it was like, I need to raise money so that I can draw a salary. That was like a big, uh, yeah. that was a big thing for me. Um, so I think be, in order, because we knew we had to raise the money, 
whereas every other company we've like you know arrogantly gone into it being like we're gonna just spend our own money and then just make billions um we, we knew we had to prepare for it so we we also we also spent a lot of time procrastinating on actually raising the money because it's mm-hmm. still something like asking people for money so we did spend like the better part of a year um working like one day a week at, at one of our other co-founder uh, michael wickware's office he was running a, a big ad agency at the time mm-hmm. uh, that he sold to, to come over here with us but we were working out of his office spending time thinking about everything talking about everything we could possibly talk about besides raising money because it's something that we just didn't want to do yeah that's a that's a real reality yeah awesome well wow eric uh i don't i don't want to take any more of your time but this has been uh very unique and and yeah, really awesome, awesome and insightful uh we, i i really enjoyed our conversation uh uh you know the three of us should go get a beer sometime or have you back on the uh have you back on the show yeah absolutely yeah. eric thank you and uh one final note before we go because chris and myself were looking uh at the plant, I don't know. I just want to mention it because it's really cool. But we were looking at the Planswell website before uh, before we hopped on with you on the show. And for anyone who has not yet seen or checked out their website or watched their video, I highly recommend that you Epic go watch their video. introductory video because <laughs> that thing is amazing. Yeah. yeah, those were the they won an award for their work with Pornhub. Um, that's how we learned about them. <laughs> well, that well that so, explains a lot. You have the job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and, and learning uh, a bit more about your background and, and uh, your experience. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a blast. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, looking forward to meeting up with you guys uh, soon. Yeah, cool. definitely. Take Thanks, care. Eric.